This is DW News, live from Berlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks out on the standoff over Ukraine. He says the U.S. is ignoring Moscow's security concerns, but signals Russia's ready for another round of negotiations. Also coming up. The situation is under control, says President Mbalo of Guinea-Bissau after a coup attempt in the West African country. Reports say the attack on the government palace saw nearly five hours of gunfire. And attacks on churches are on the rise in India. New laws cracking down on religious conversion are emboldening right-wing Hindu groups. And Christian leaders fear harassment or even jail. Plus, with the Winter Olympics set to begin this week in Beijing, athletes are preparing to go for gold, while political issues and the ongoing pandemic continue to cause headaches for organizers. I'm Gerhard Elfers. Welcome to the program. Russia's President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's security concerns in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. He said the West was using Ukraine to hinder Russia's development. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations, but so far neither side has been willing to budge on their positions. For weeks, he has left the talking to others, but now President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. Well, for more on this story, I'm now joined by DW correspondent Magdalena Gwusz-Palokat in uh, Warsaw. Uh, Magdalena, what's Poland's role in this conflict? Well, Poland stands for a rather tough stance on Russia, claiming that the only language that is being understood in Russia 
is a very, very clear no. And remember, Poland is also in the front line of criticizing the gas pipeline Nord Stream 2 that directly links Russia and Germany, saying that it will be a risk for the whole of Europe. And um, so far, Poland made clear that uh, in the crucial question of weapon delivery, uh, that should be coordinated with the partners. But recently, it looks like Poland is also willing to um, offer a direct delivery of military goods uh, to the Ukraine. And, um, you know, in these days, many here in Poland remember the words of the former president, Lech Kaczynski, who during the Georgia crisis, uh, when um, Poland offered and expressed solidarity to Georgia, said, this time it's Georgia, next time Ukraine, and then it's us. So Poland is very, very sensible with the prospects of uh, rebuilding a Russian empire. Mm. So Poland's prime minister was also in Ukraine on a Tuesday. What kind of support is Warsaw offering? Well, Morawiecki, the Prime Minister of Poland, uh, said Poland is going to offer not only um, uh, support in defense, but also in other areas um, like economical stability or humanitarian aid, which already happens, he claimed. And um, a gas supplier here in Poland, a state gas supplier, uh, proclaimed that it um, would deliver liquid gas from U.S. to Ukraine in the future. And, uh, you know, when it comes to military equipment, Poland would hand over tens of thousands of rounds of artillery ammunition, right mortars, man portable air defense systems and drones. That's what we are hearing since a few days here in Warsaw. Now, Poland has been one of the most vocal EU members about the threat posed by Russia. Morawiecki said that living close to a neighbor like Russia is like living at the foot of a volcano. Does Warsaw believe the EU can come up with a unified response? Well, we hear in Warsaw that a uni uh, unified response is, of course, necessary. But on the other um, hand, we know that, of course, there are different approaches uh, in Europe. And Warsaw has been very critical in the last days and weeks with uh, Germany. Prime Minister Morawiecki even openly uh, said that he feels disappointed about Germany concerning its hesitations to give Estonia green light um, to send German weapons to Kiev and um, concerning alternatives alliances. Yesterday we heard of another one between Britain, Poland and Ukraine, which rather for me seems more symbolic and also a very important general here in Poland. An army officer said yesterday it's uh, nothing new indeed because these countries work already together since uh, 96 in a program called Partnership for Peace. CW's Magdalena Agush-Palokath in Warsaw. Thank you, Magdalena. Let's have a quick roundup of some other stories making headlines today. In the U.S., pharmaceutical companies BioNTech and Pfizer are seeking emergency authorization for a vaccine developed for children under the age of five. If approved, this weaker version of the vaccine would be the first to be made available in the U.S. to children above the age of six months. Authorities in Canada have broken up a convoy of trucks that was blocking a major border crossing into the U.S. Truckers staged the protest as part of a larger anti-vaccine demonstration that blocked roads in the capital of Ottawa over the weekend. Details are emerging after a reported coup in Guinea-Bissau. President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo has said assailants armed with machine guns attacked the government palace for hours while he and his prime minister were inside, but that the situation is now under control. 
The violence in Guinea-Bissau is the latest in a series of attempted military takeovers in West Africa in recent months, most of which have succeeded. Gunfire near the government seat in Bissau, forcing bystanders to seek shelter. For hours, President Umaro Sissoko Embalo's whereabouts remained unclear, until he addressed the nation saying several security personnel had been killed in what he called a failed attack against democracy. I was in the middle of the Council of Ministers, with all the members, including the Prime Minister. We were attacked with very heavy weaponry for a duration of five hours, but now everything is under control. The African Union and the UN have both condemned the attempted coup. It is for us clear that uh, coups are totally unacceptable. We are seeing a terrible multiplication of coups uh, and our strong appeal is for soldiers to go back to the barracks and for the constitutional order to be fully in place in the democratic context of today's Guinea-Bissau. Mbalo's opponents had accused the former army general of election fraud after his victory in the December 2019 polls. He had also recently been at odds with his prime minister following a minor government shake-up. Since independence from Portugal in 1974, Guinea-Bissau has experienced four coups and more than a dozen attempted ones. To India now, where there has been a rise in the number of attacks on churches and other Christian gatherings. They're being carried out by right-wing Hindu groups emboldened by new laws cracking down on religious conversion. Critics say these groups are abusing the laws to push their own agenda, often facing no consequences themselves. DW's Delhi correspondent Nimisha Jaswal traveled to the town of Hubali in the southern state of Karnataka to meet a pastor who has shut down his church in the face of continued abuse. The highlight of Pastor Somu Avradi's week has always been the Sunday service. But now, he's staying alone at his church in Hubli. It is the first time he has been back in more than three months. Last October, as the pastor was on his way to the church, he received urgent phone calls warning him that volunteers linked with Hindu right-wing groups were disrupting the Sunday prayer gathering there. They had barged in and started loudly chanting Hindu hymns. When the pastor arrived to question them, they claimed that they had proof he had tried to forcefully convert a Hindu man in their midst. The pastor said he'd never met the alleged victim before, yet he was still taken to the police station on charges of verbally abusing a man from a protected caste. I was the one who called the police. I was going to file a case against them, but they pushed me aside and started beating me. They beat seven members of my church. They entered the police station and abused and threatened me. No action has been taken against the Hindu group. It was the pastor who spent 11 days in jail and he continues to face charges. It didn't end there. The pastor's family was terrorized in their neighborhood. Their landlord threatened with harm if he didn't evict them. They were forced to move. They also had to pull their daughter out of school because she was being bullied. My children's classmates were harassing them, taunting them that their father had been sent to prison. My children were embarrassed. I had to pull them out of school. They haven't been able to return. Over the last year, 
Christian groups have reported a spike in similar attacks and harassment in Karnataka, especially after plans for a new law were announced. The state of Karnataka is in the process of passing an anti-conversion law which targets conversions considered fraudulent or forced. But the definition of what is illegal is very broad and the punishments very strict. Right-wing Hindu groups here strongly support the law. Manjunath Hipsur was amongst the men who stormed Pastor Avaradi's church. He alleges that Christian congregations like Avaradi's brainwash Hindus into rejecting their religion or offer financial incentives to convert. The law, he says, will give them strong grounds to put an end to this. Once the law comes, we can demolish these churches. We are already prepared to demolish them, but we are waiting for the law to be passed. Once it is passed, our hands are no longer tied. We are free to take action. We can catch them and report them to the police. And they'll go to prison. For now, Pastor Avradi visits church members at home and only in areas considered safe. This man and his family were also forced out of their village after the attack on the church. But they say they find comfort in prayer. All they want is the freedom to do so in peace. Well, the WS Delhi correspondent Nimisha Jaswal filed this report and she joins us now from Delhi. Uh, uh, Nimisha, these attacks have been going on for some time. Why is the government not doing more to protect these Christian communities? Well, Gerhard, the simple reason is that the government is often one of those making these allegations. In the case that we just watched, the BJP's elected representative was actually one of the people who led the protests following the pastor's arrest and actually called for action against him. Now, of course, it's important to note here that, the, that India's Christian community is one of the oldest in Asia and dates back centuries. Yet the target of these groups, as well as BJP legislators, is those who were born Hindu and have, and have either officially converted or are covertly believing in Christianity. But, of course, BJP legislators themselves have actually been present or have made speeches that directly call for action and sometimes even violence against these communities. And they are, of course, also pushing anti-conversion laws across the country. Well, tell us more about this, this anti-conversion bill. What's its purpose? Well, to look at the one in Karnataka, Gerhard, interestingly, it's called the Freedom of Religion Bill. And if you look at it simply, it actually just prescribes ways to convert. For example, it says that you should let authorities know a month before converting and also report your conversion a month after it. However, all these reports actually allow for time uh, for, time for, Christi for Hindu right-wing groups to attack or abuse these people. So this is generally avoided. In addition, many kinds of conversions are considered fraudulent or forced and can be charged. The word allurement, for example, is used for what is considered illegal and that has such a broad definition that pretty much anyone can be charged with forcing conversions and anyone can report these conversions as well, not just family but neighbours and bystanders too. And strict action is taken against these people. Uh, Nimisha, India has also been recording a rise in attacks on minorities for quite some time. How is this impacting the Modi government's popularity there? 
Well, while international condemnation and attention has been brought to the fact that attacks on minorities are rising in India, domestically, political analysts believe that this could actually be adding to the Modi government's popularity because of this government's agenda of a Hindu Rashtra or a Hindu nation, which is being promoted not only through policies like these, but also laws and, and as well as silence on attacks on minorities. Now, this, for example, can, can include saying that Christians are forcing conversions or saying that Muslims are marrying Hindu girls and practicing love jihad, all of these allegations demonizing minorities and saying that Hindus are under threat and that Hindus should take over power and should be the, uh, should be the religion that drives the nation. This of course plays well amongst the voters for Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government as well. The W's. Nimisha Jaiswal there reporting. Thank you very much, Nimisha. And I have some more news headlines for you. Supporters of Argentina's government took to the streets in Buenos Aires, calling for the resignation of Supreme Court judges, accusing them of corruption, bias and siding with the opposition. The opposition said the demonstrations are an attempt to destabilize the state. A publisher in the Netherlands has halted printing of a book which suggests it was a Jewish notary who betrayed diarist Anne Frank to Nazi forces in World War II. The author's research has been fiercely criticized by academics and historians. The publisher apologized, saying they should have taken a more critical stance. U.S. actor and TV presenter Whoopi Goldberg has been suspended by the ABC network following her remarks about Jews and the Holocaust. Goldberg had said that the Holocaust was not about race, but about man's inhumanity to man. She later apologized after a backlash. Now, Beijing will become the first city in history to host both the Summer and the Winter Olympics when this year's Games officially begin on Friday. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for sporting glory, but with health concerns and political tensions dominating headlines in the build-up, sport is at risk of becoming a sideshow at Beijing 2022. Billions have been invested into making sure Beijing 2022 is successful. Sports fans can enjoy over a hundred events across a range of disciplines, but the build-up to these games has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance, where some nations have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues, including Great Britain and the US. They will send athletes, but no ministers or officials will attend. Meanwhile, athletes have been warned that expressing oneself could result in punishments under Chinese law if it's deemed an illegal act. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, they cannot express their opinions. But at other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes need to be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organizers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. 
Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. So far, there have been more than 20 new COVID-19 cases among games-related personnel. The pandemic proves to be just one of several headaches for organisers of Beijing 2022. Well, for more on the Beijing Winter Olympics, we're now joined in the studio by Tom Genaube, DW Sports. Tom, just how much disruption can we expect as a result of the pandemic to start with? Uh, well, there has been plenty of disruption already, of course, and we can certainly expect plenty more. Now, these obviously aren't the first Olympic Games to take place during the pandemic. Tokyo 2020 ended up, of course, taking place a year late and almost totally behind closed doors. So there are some precedents, but um, yeah, there will still be plenty of disruption. Now, athletes are, of course, going to be contained in the COVID bubble, subject to daily testing. And if any of those are unlucky enough to test positive during that time, that's obviously games over. They'll be immediately removed, uh, taken into isolation. Uh, journalists, of course, who are reporting on the games from Beijing are in similar conditions in a separate bubble, also subject to plenty of testing and will have to conduct their interactions with officials and uh, athletes um, at a distance. Um, and for spectators, the disruption has been almost total. Now, last year, the decision was announced that there would be no international spectators. Um, and only recently we heard that there wouldn't even be a public sale of tickets domestically within China. Now, it is said that there will still be some spectators. It's slightly unclear exactly what the criteria will be that spectators need to meet to get a ticket for the Games. Um, so yeah, all in all, uh, COVID casting a long shadow over the Games. There's also been a diplomatic boycott. Uh, but the uh, let's go from all those headlines to the sporting aspect, because it's a Winter Olympics in the end. Uh, what can we expect from Beijing in, in that regard, for, in a sporting context? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, plenty of sporting headlights, uh, headlines and highlights to look forward to. Now, obviously, the Winter Olympics is a slightly smaller scale event than the Summer Games, so not quite as much action, but still plenty of things to get excited about. One of those is um, the return of the Jamaican bobsled team to oh. the Olympic Games after okay. 24 years. They've been training in the UK um, reportedly partially by pushing a Mini Cooper around the city of Bath. So their appearance at the bobsled is certainly a highlight to look forward to. Ski Big Air making its Olympic debut. Um, Sean White, a, a massive Olympian, um, probably his last games. Um, and of course, curling, an iconic sport of the Winter Games, especially in my view, um, that begins why, today. Why, with the why curling? Why? What's so special about uh, there curling? Was, there was a time when the, um, when, when the UK curling team just sort of really captured the public imagination in Great Britain. And that was when I was growing up. And ever since then, curling has really been a sport that I look out for. Now, the preliminary rounds of curling begin today, actually two days before the, um, the opening ceremony, of course, on Friday. So, yeah, the action is uh, starting in just a couple of hours' time. And we're all looking forward to that. Tom Genoi there, DW Sports. Thanks a lot for that. Thank you. And now we go to Colombia, which is facing a dilemma over what to do with dozens of hippos. They were first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar, and he was killed by police almost 30 years ago. And since then, a growing population of hippos has been taken over the countryside near his former ranch. Our reporter traveled to Medellin in northern Colombia to discover why scientists and activists are divided over how to deal with the animals. A legacy of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar and a problem that has grown over the years. 
Colombia's hippos, now the largest population outside of Africa, which is their natural habitat. The so-called king of cocaine brought four of the pachyderms to his ranch. They've now multiplied to more than 90 and are causing havoc. They like it here, especially in high summer when the hippos gather. They swim out there and then reappear somewhere else. They rammed my boat and tipped it over because you can't see them at night. The males aren't so aggressive, but one hit my boat with a big bang. The hippos in Colombia are now the subject of public debate. Animal rights activists insist that the large mammals are completely innocent. But environmentalists criticize the effects the hippos have on the ecosystem and the indigenous fauna. Scientists support an end to the hippos. It sounds rather harsh, but we must clearly state that it must be done. I think that we from the academy must be able to explain why this must be done, even if no one is happy about it. No one wants to kill the hippos. But it's the lesser of two evils in this scenario. The environmental agency has started with harmless birth control, a contraceptive that works with both male and female hippos. The medicine, donated by U.S. animal welfare authorities, is given by injection. Now we must wait and see how the medicine works. Then we'll know if it really will lead to fewer calves. But young hippos often disappear even without medication. The semi-aquatic animals have achieved a kind of cult status among people who wish to imitate Pablo Escobar. Two of the little ones have already been taken away. They were sold. There are a lot of rich people in this country who want to have something like this. The last young hippo was brought to a man who is said to be very powerful. So now there's a market for these exotic animals in Colombia, and they lack natural enemies. That's why this is the largest hippo population outside of Africa where they are indigenous. You're watching DW News. Here's a reminder of the top story we're following for you. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the West of ignoring Moscow's concerns about regional security in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations. And that's it from me and the news team for now. I'll have an update for you at the top of the hour. Stay tuned now for Eco India, DW's Environment magazine is coming up after a short break. I'm Gab Elfus. Thanks for your company.
India. Getting rid of dams. And legal rights for rivers. Water scarcity is at an all-time high. And people demand radical solutions. Corporations claim they can handle the crisis, but at what cost? Eco-India. Farming, livestock breeding, Bible studies, that's all they need. For 200 years, the same way of life. Rare insights into the remote world of Mennonites. In 45 minutes on DW. Soccer is a sport of many colors. And the children in this mountain village know them all. Hema wears blue, the color of her favorite team. But sexist traditions prevent her from going to games and playing. An insurmountable obstacle? Blue Girl, Football on the Peak, starts February 4th on DW.